Well, I'm sure you're both wondering what all this is about. Did you get any clues at our previous interviews? No. Well, I made a guess. Seems to have been wrong. What was it? Some sort of commando work, but obviously if Miss Williams is involved. As a matter of fact, your guess wasn't so far out. I'm Sonia Purnell, and I'm the author of A Woman of No Importance, which is the true and unbelievable story of Virginia Hall. She went into France as an agent for SOE two years the day after the war started, although she had previously been operating in France as an ambulance driver for the French army on the front um, when Germany <clears throat> invaded in May 1940. So she knew what it was like to be under fire, under bombardment. You know, she'd sort of come across the, the German invaders before. And despite that, maybe because of that, she was determined to go back in at a point when the SOE were struggling to get anybody into France. And so it was a bit like um, living across the channel from North Korea in the sense that we knew nothing about what was going on under Nazi occupation. Um, all the agents, secret agents that Britain had had in France previously had either been killed, had fled or were compromised in some way. So it was a completely dark country to us. And yet, despite that, she volunteered to, to go in on her own, no reception committee, no contacts to speak of, um, incredibly dangerous, no way of contacting London initially, no wireless operators at that point. And she was given, at best, a 50-50 chance of surviving the first few days. I want you both to go to occupied France. France? How? By sea or air, only you won't be going in uniform. What do we do when we get there? organize resistance, act as liaison officers with London. There she was, very little training. She went off, went in undercover as an American journalist. Obviously, America hadn't joined the war yet. She was an American herself from Baltimore, but she was volunteering to help the Brits. Um, and so it is quite incredible that she was prepared to go in as she did. And her job really was to just to start very, very early stages of fanning the flames, if you like, of the resistance. Because people think, as did I before I started looking into it, that you know, once um, France capitulated in 1940, once it was occupied, the resistance just kind of sprung into being in some kind of organic way. That didn't happen, I can tell you. That did not happen. Behind the high walls, the men are ready. Men in blue uniforms who for four bitter years have been forced to salute men in green uniforms. There are a few brave souls who who were still dissidents, who were still individually trying to resist, but there was no organization at all. Most people were simply focusing on surviving, keeping their children fed, that kind of thing. And they weren't that keen to take on the enemy. They, they thought it was impossible. That They were told anyway that Britain was about to surrender. There was no one outside France who was ever going to help them. Um, you know, the propaganda was pretty constant on that. So she was going into a country which kind of, given up. And here she was, this foreign woman, um, trying to help start the whole thing, the whole resistance. So um, knowing that uh, anyone she might try to recruit, anyone that she might try to talk to could have been a collaborator. The, the, the rewards for, for um, denouncing someone were, were very high, very generous. Um, people were worried about feeding their kids. So anyone that she spoke to could have shopped her to the Gestapo or the French police at any point. So she had to be extremely careful in who she started trying to recruit. Now, she must have had some amazing sixth sense, and I think a lot of great agents do, because she did manage to recruit 
not just a few, well, the few at the beginning, but gradually she started forming these extraordinary networks across the whole of France. And she became known as Marie, one of her chief codenames, Marie of Lyon, who seemed to be able to work miracles, had amazing contacts everywhere, and really, really did help, you know, kickstart the the French resistance as we've all got to know it. Stakes couldn't have been higher. I mean, it's quite clear that um, if she were caught, she she would have been executed. But before that, the the Nazis and the the Vichy police. I mean, let's not forget how brutal and barbarous they were. They actually competed with the Gestapo to be the most brutal with with prisoners, and they they both reserved a particularly vicious level of barbarity and torture for women. Bursts of gunfire blaze across the waiting street. They are returned. In spite of the noise and confusion of the fighting, with calm efficiency... I mean, I won't go into the details here. I do talk about a few of them in the book, but they both thought that women, and they were probably right on this, well, initially they, they thought that in a sort of rather sexist way that women wouldn't get involved in this kind of thing. But once they realised that women were, and were often couriers, knew a lot of secrets, knew a lot of... Um, information that would be useful to them. They, they use absolutely barbaric forms of torture, including, you know, um, torturing women's babies in front of them to try and make them talk um, and did unspeakable things to them as well. She knew what the stakes were. Um, and as she became better known to the Germans and the French police, um, refused um, orders on various occasions to, to leave the field and come back to Britain because she hadn't finished her, her job. She continued and continued, even as the Gestapo were closing in on her, even when they had a double agent who had uh, identified her and was moving in on her. She continued to go. It was only in November 1942 when... She finally left the field, as I say, over the Pyrenees in some of the worst snows for, for 200 years. But, you know, it's amazing she survived that. I mean, the, the secret papers talk about that being a record all in itself. Not only that, she came back to Britain and for some while after that did everything she could to get back into the field and finally got back into the field in, in March 1944. But of course, by that point, the Gestapo knew everything about her. They knew what she looked like. They had her photograph. They knew her name, her nationality. They identified her as the most dangerous of all Allied spies. And so when she went back for her second mission in the field, a lot of people tried to stop her, but there was no stopping. Virginia Hall, I can tell you, she went back in disguise as a milkmaid with the help of Hollywood makeup artists who made her look about 30, 40 years older than she really was. Uh, you know, she was an absolute force of nature and um, there was pr pretty much no stopping her once she got an idea into her head.
the special operations executive was, was the brainchild of Winston Churchill himself. I mean, remember, he had fought in the trenches in World War One, and what he really didn't want the Second World War to, to copy was that awful attrition warfare where you lost tens of thousands of young men to gain a few inches of territory only to lose it again. He never wanted to have that kind of warfare again. So he really invented this idea. It was sort of part special forces, part espionage, um, part subversion, and that these sort of agents, these mythical agents, would go into France and, and stir up dissent, stir up resistance with the idea that ultimately they, that the sort of internal army, the secret army, if you like, would be able to help the Allies whenever they eventually came back to French shores. Now, initially, this would be mostly preparing people, picking up some intelligence, getting people organized, um, organizing parachute drops um, after some time of arms and ammunition, um, and explosives, and then gradually, when the time was right, to start using those um, that equipment for um, ambushes on convoys and um, putting things like um, power stations out of action and things. But that was going to be much later. Now, the problem with this was that anyone who um, might be uh, qualified to do, any, to any of that kind of work didn't want to do it. The odds against you surviving were so overwhelming that after six months of trying, they hadn't got a single person into France yet. Um, one person, one man had gone up in an airplane to be parachuted in and he bottled out at the last moment and didn't do it. So when Virginia Hall rocked up through this extraordinary kind of sliding doors moment where a billion to one chance she encountered an undercover agent in Spain in the Spanish railway station who identified her, this kind of force of nature that I talked about. So when she volunteered to go in for them, she was one of the very first to actually make it, they couldn't believe their luck. And they really couldn't believe their luck. And, and so off she went in September 1941. Not much was expected of her. Women weren't supposed to be doing this kind of work. And she astonished them. Um, one of them called um, it stupefaction with how extraordinary she was at this. And when most of her colleagues were captured and imprisoned, she not only got them out eventually, but in the meantime, uh, the secret papers describe that she carried pretty much the whole of Allied intelligence and the whole of France on her shoulders. They told us in the most gentlemanly manner how to organize our private lives as saboteurs, how to burgle a house, how to get out of handcuffs. They told us almost apologetically about lethal tablets, suicide pills, to be taken only as a last resort. We made notes about organization and personal security. Learned how to recognize all ranks of the German services. Told how to use codes. How the BBC sent personal messages during the French news. The organization of the Gestapo. Until our brains reeled under the load of information. At another school, we were taught how to organize reception committees. That's local people who'd collect in a field the night the RAF were coming to parachute supplies. With electric torches, they'd guide the planes to the field. Then there was a radio device called the Eureka. The training was pretty cursory. It involved two or three days in a, in a modern villa in the New Forest somewhere, where they, they taught her a few things. They taught her how to write, use urine as secret ink. It comes up very nicely under heat, apparently. 
how to take a document off a, a, a table and replace the dust so it doesn't look like anything has been moved, how to creep up onto a house that's occupied without attracting attention. Also a little bit out on disguises. She she knew she'd always been rather keen on theatre actually, but she was now sort of taught how different you can make yourself look by changing your parting, by putting glasses on, by wearing gloves and hiding your hands, by putting little rubber slithers in your cheeks to alter the shape of your face. Um, and also she was given um, L pills, lethal pills, potassium cyanide, little um, round balls which you could keep in the back of your mouth and if you didn't chew them they'd be fine if you did chew them though that death would come in 45 seconds so she had those a lot of people had those but you know in terms of actually building up a resistance network from scratch she had virtually no training at all and there was very good reason for that this is in a foreign hostile country no one had ever really done it before so she was pioneering techniques and doing that building up networks recruiting people in a hostile foreign country that are still in use the cia told me this themselves by the cia to this day and she kind of invented it as she went along because this hadn't been done the nearest they had was what the ira had done in 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 ireland um, against the brits but obviously that had been in their home country but Otherwise, there was really nothing to go on in terms of precedent. She was having to um, make it up as she went along. It just happened to be that she was very, very, very good at that. An unlikely cast, but a terrifically brave one. Amongst her first recruits were um, some uh, nuns in a, in a sort of closed order uh, on a hill outside Lyon. Lyon um, became her headquarters. And um, initially it was because she had nowhere to, to sleep in Lyon when she first arrived. It was full of refugees. And so she went up to this convent and they, they took her in out of pity. And then she immediately recruited them. And that was her first safe house in, in France. And they sheltered a lot of um, people there on the run, agents on the run, um, you know, Jews, all sorts of people, they sheltered up there. And then she went to the other end of the morality spectrum and she recruited Germaine Grand, the, the legendary, wonderfully beautiful madam of, a, of Lyon's most successful brothel, incredibly brave woman. And she recruited a lot of her prostitutes, Fille de Joie, in, in French, to pass on intelligence that they gleaned from their German clients. They, they could often drug their, their, their drinks, spike their drinks, that they would fall asleep. They would rifle through their uniforms and take photographs of any documents that looked important or interesting. And they also, quite deliberately, and with the help of their doctor, who gave them little white cards denoting them free of infection, knowing that they were anything from the sort and they would sleep with as many German officers as they as they could while they were infected themselves before seeking treatment to put them out of action. Now we will never know the names of those women. A lot of those women were only doing this job because their husbands had been captured or killed. There was no other work. They had to feed their children somehow. A lot of them were caught, sent to um, concentration camps like Ravensbrück were, were executed. They were unbelievably brave. They passed on incredibly useful intelligence to Virginia Hall, who passed it 
back to um, to London, called them my tart friends who know a hell of a lot. And we will never even know their names. And this is a sort of, you know, an extraordinary source and form of courage that I just don't think has been appreciated or known about or, or let alone understood. And Virginia recognised these women as being extraordinarily brave and, and patriotic and wanting to do their bit. But quite apart from them, as if that wasn't enough, she recruited police chiefs, railway workers, people in town halls, um, some of the censors, the Vichy government censors, all sorts of people in all sorts of different um, professions and locations who were able to help a businessman who's, who gave her more safe houses and, and land to organise parachute drops. And her knowledge and her intelligence was so good that some people thought she must even have contacts within the Gestapo itself. She always seemed to be you know, to, to know when they were about to mount a raid and that kind of thing. So she was an absolute genius at recruitment, somehow knowing whether people could be trusted or not, apart from one occasion when she made a terrible, terrible mistake. And that was the double agent that the Abwehr, German military intelligence, had sent in with the Gestapo as well to try and track down this limping lady that they knew was being so successful. And she had her doubts, but at the same time, you see, he was a priest and he seemed to know so much about her. And that was because the Gestapo had captured so many people and tortured them to find out that she, and he seemed to have such good intelligence that she did let down her guard at one point. And that was something that really haunted her for the rest of her life. But I think really that was her one mistake because normally 99% of the time, she was very, very astute and you know, very alive to any of the dangers um, facing her or indeed any, any of her colleagues. But she'd been in the field for a long time at this point. I think she was also exhausted, but she did manage to escape before he got her. I mean, it was very, very touch and go though. She'd always been an adventurous soul, and she was brought up um, in Baltimore by a, a well-to-do, you know, well-to-do family. And initially, they just expected her to marry an eligible young man, have a fashionable household, be sort of a woman in society. And that was never going to be Virginia Hall. She she was a tomboy. She liked going hunting with her dad and country pursuits, riding horses bareback, all sorts of things that you you didn't do as a young woman of means in the in the 1920s. Um, or, or late um, 19 teens, but then um, she she what she really wanted to do was be an ambassador. Now women weren't ambassadors in those days, but she wanted to study abroad and pick up languages and and hopefully try and enter the State Department. So she went to um, study in Paris at the age of 20 uh, in in the sort of the Roaring Twenties and loved it. Absolutely loved it. It was so much more liberating than back home. No racial segregation. No prohibition women far more emancipated than they were back in Baltimore. And that was when she started to 
develop this actual love for France and, and Europe in general. But also as she continued to study, she saw the beginnings of nationalism rising, extremism, Nazism, fascism, you know, towards the end of the 1920s. And this sort of really began to haunt her and wanted her to made her want to become an ambassador and join the diplomatic service even more. And she took the exam a couple of times and always seemed to be turned down without any real reason. So she joined the State Department in the end as a secretary. And that's with having studied in seven different universities and with five languages. And, she, you know, it was just a time when women found it very difficult to progress. And it was while she was working as a, as a clerk for the State Department in Turkey that she went hunting with friends and um, with a gun, a hunting gun her father had left her, her father had now passed away. And, and um, it, uh, it was one sort of sunny December day in, in the Geddes Delta marshes and she was hunting, shooting snipe. And she tripped over a wire fence running through the reeds which she hadn't spotted. And as she fell, she grabbed her gun and she hadn't engaged the safety catch and she literally shot herself in the foot her left foot and um, initially thought that she was going to be fine but then uh, she, gangrene um, entered the foot and started rising up the leg and she was on the point of death and the only way of trying to save her was by cutting off her, her left leg and she was only 27 at that point and she nearly died several times more it's really a miracle that she got through at all. And I think that that awful accident, you know, this very active young woman suddenly finding herself having lost a leg, nothing like the prosthetics she had now, very rudimentary, painful. She was never for a moment out of pain again. And yet it was that determination to make something of her life when she was just expected to go home and sit in the corner of a room for the rest of her years that I think led her to take these risks but also gave her that courage and that determination and that self-reliance that made her a really very, very great agent indeed. And she made what she could out of adversity and she became this great problem solver. She believed that nothing, you know, should hold you back. There would always be a way around it. And I guess she proved that, you know, countless times by, doing what she did with a wooden leg that was very, very difficult, caused her great pain. I mean, just think about crossing that mountain, that very high mountain pass in snows, Gestapo in pursuit with, with a wooden leg. It is just extraordinary. She was made of the toughest stuff, imagine it. Being, you know, being a woman was was very difficult in, in SOE. I mean, there had actually been a, a cabinet edict that women were not to be given these jobs, but SOE was so desperate um, that they tore up the rule book such as it was and hired her after all she was prepared to do it. Um, but they didn't think that she would do more than be what they called a liaison officer, which was really just sort of looking after other agents and not really being in command herself. It was circumstances that gave her her chance, if you like, to show that she could do things that no one thought that women could do. I mean, simply because most of her 
all male uh, colleagues were captured. And it was her kind of sixth sense that I talked about that meant that she wasn't captured, that they all they were all lured into a sort of a trap, basically, in Marseille. Something just kind of made her think, I- I'm not going to go there. I-, I just don't like the the sound of this. So she remained free. And it was at that point that really she started to show what she could do. But more agents were coming out, mostly male or all male for a year, um, as I said. And they, even though she was now very experienced in the field, was proving herself again and again and again, wouldn't take orders from her, made her life difficult, tried to claim credit for things that she'd done in London. London didn't really believe that a woman could do these things and therefore believed that some of these men, um, that they had, had done them. And yet these men were often not as self-reliant as she was. They took to the bottle, they drank too much, they slept with too many women which was, of course, a great security risk. And it took a long time for London to really realise what was going on. And and so she had not only the challenge of remaining alive and free and out of the clutches of the Gestapo, but the the bad-mouthing and the, the obstructiveness of other men. Now, gradually, she was able to impose discipline and impose her will to some extent, if you like. But... She had to prove again and again and again what she was made of. And perhaps one of her you know, biggest triumphs at this point in the war is, as I say, becoming a jailbreak ace. So there were 12 SOEA vital ones, radio operators, sabotage experts, all sorts of people who were captured as a result of this Marseille so honey trap. And uh, no one could get them out. All sorts of agents came over from London to try and spring them from jail. And it all looked hopeless and they were facing execution and then finally Virginia was given her chance I'm not going to tell you how she did it but I can tell you we've all seen the you know Grace Escape obviously most Christmases and we know that those guys were mostly caught they didn't make it but you know there are films and it's it's celebrated well I can tell you that that big operation and many many smaller ones by the way that big operation at Mozak Virginia got all 12 men out of the camp all 12 men safely over the Pyrenees into Spain and all 12 men back to Britain. She didn't lose a single one. And that word stupefaction uh, was used in London that anyone could be capable of doing this. So it was that she proved herself so many times that they finally took notice of her. Um, But it's so interesting, isn't it, that until now, really, People just haven't known about this. They haven't known about what happened at Mozart. They haven't known that this woman um, was the mastermind behind it. So, you know, sometimes history tells us uh, only part of the, the story. And I'm, I'm hoping to get her story out because, you know, I, we don't really understand what happened without understanding what Virginia Hall did as, as part of that. Virginia teaches us many things that are, are as relevant today as, as back then. 
courage comes in many places and in many forms. And often the people who are the bravest and most courageous are those that talk least about what they did, but don't necessarily come over. They don't look like a superhero. Um, so Virginia herself didn't. The prostitutes she worked with didn't. The nuns. The, there's a guy who looks like an old-fashioned grocer, Dennis Rake, she worked with. These people don't look like superheroes, but they certainly were. And the resilience, the just never giving up, that is extraordinary. The courage that goes with that, but the fact that you just keep going. I think that's what I find most amazing about her. She didn't grumble. She just found a way around problems. And um, my friends and I often sort of say to each other now, you know, we're in some tiny little kind of scrape or mess or have a problem, obviously nothing like hers. But, you know, what would Virginia do? How, how would she deal with this? And she had this calm, which is just just stays with me. And I think will stay with me forever. And I, I just... Um, really am in awe of what she achieved and I do try and learn from her all the time.